have life now. And that's what the mission's all about. And that's what we want to be about here at Grace. And we're glad you've joined us this morning. And we are in a uh, series uh, in the study of the book of Acts. And you're thinking, well, this is Resurrection Sunday. I mean, you've got to deviate from the book of Acts because it's about the resurrection, right? Uh-huh. Well, in the providence of God, we just happen to be in a passage by accident that talks 90% about the resurrection on this day. And I did not, as you all know, the way I work, I did not plan and look out there, okay, we're going to be on this passage on this day because often when I begin a book, I have no idea how long it's going to take me. And sometimes it takes longer than I think. And by the providence of God, here we are. Acts chapter 2. So I'd invite you to take your copy of, words, of God's Word, whether it be in paper or be electronic. Uh, turn there with me to Acts chapter 2, and we will continue this series called, which we entitled Missio Dei, which is Latin for the mission of God. And the mission of God is uh, clearly set out in the book of Acts and then clearly lived out in the book of Acts. We saw the mission of, of, of God back in chapter 1, uh, verse 8, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the remotest part of the world. And then the rest of the book of Acts lives that out. That's the outline for the book of Acts, the mission of God. And throughout the book of Acts, we were witnessing God's people being on mission, being about his purposes for their lives. And the title of the message this morning, taken from Acts uh, chapter 2, verses 22 through 36, and I know a lot of you are probably... <coughs> wondering how in the world we're going to get through that many verses. We will. It's just the nature sometimes of a narrative and the way that this uh, has come together. But we'll be written verses 22 through 36 of chapter 2. But the, the title of the message this morning is Jesus is Lord and Christ. And I can't tell you how much good news is in that. And I think we'll see it uh, this morning. In fact, that's really the, the, the summary uh, that Peter uses uh, at the end of this part to summarize what he said. That Jesus is both Lord and and Christ. And that's so important and so encouraging. So I want to read through this passage as a whole, and then we'll come back and look at it, uh, just kind of individually work down through it. So beginning in verse 22 there, chapter 2 of Acts. Men of Israel, and just to remind you, Peter is preaching a sermon. He's preaching a sermon. Alright? And, and let me remind you this, the very first thing that happened at the beginning of the church was somebody stood up and preached a sermon. They declared God's word. Because only God's word can change people. So here we are, we're just in, in, we're in the, the body of Peter's sermon. <clears throat> Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the way, ways of life, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, 
I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had to sworn to him with an oath to sit one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which you are all witnesses. Therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make my enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much. For your word, Lord, thank you that in the providence of God on this particular resurrection day as we celebrate here in 2015, we come to this passage which declares your resurrection, declares that Jesus was both Lord and Christ, both Lord and Messiah, just as you had promised. Lord, I pray that we would find hope in these words this morning, that you would use these words to bring hope, to bring healing, Lord, for some of us to bring change, to bring conviction. Uh, Lord, uh, we ask you would do what only you can do, is use your word to make us more like Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you a question this morning, as I often do as we begin our time in God's word. Uh, How many of you here this morning are familiar with these words? And now, for the rest of the story. Have you ever heard of that? Right? Yeah, it's, yeah, most of us have heard that. Maybe some of the younger crowd haven't heard that, or people who never turned on the radio on the AM dial, all right, um, may have never heard of that. But these words were made famous by a guy named Paul Harvey, exactly right, who began at the end, this is, who began using these words at the end of his radio cast, which began during World War II, is when Paul Harvey began this, his radio cast and began tagging this little... And now the rest of the story are on to the end of his radio broadcast. And he would tell stories um, of impactful, impactful people and influential people and famous people in the world. Now, he did this up until 1976, and then the rest of the story became its own radio program. I mean, just, you just drop it in wherever. And that's, most of us are familiar with that because you, they would just drop it in at the end of newscast on uh, the radio. Well, he continued this until his death in 2009. And uh, he made this three to four minute show so intriguing um, by the way he would draw you in. He would begin telling the story or telling a story about someone who you had no idea who it was. And he did such a good job being so obscure about this story about this person that most of the time you couldn't guess who it was to the very end when he would boom, spring it on you. I heard one just the other day about Albert Einstein. He was saying, an old owl, nobody wanted to hire him. Owl, he, he'd been rejected by so many people, and finally someone gave Al a chance as a lower clerk in their business. And he, at the end, it's Albert Einstein. I would have never guessed that. And he just sucks you in by, by telling the story, and you just get pulled into these, the life of these, these lives of people, and he would just draw, uh, just, just kind of suck you there at the very end, and then he'd tell you who it was. Go, oh, yeah, I knew that all the time. Right? Where you go, wow, that's unbelievable. I can't believe all those things about that particular person that most of us would know the person. Or just imagine if he would have given his normal detailed description of a person, then at the end of the story, not given the name of the person. And just 
ended his broadcast with his normal, have a good day. But never told you. You'd be upset, wouldn't you? Well, come on, tell me. I want to know. You left off the most important part of the story. Who was this person? We'd probably be pretty upset with Paul Harvey. And if that's the way he started his program, the program wouldn't have lasted a week. Because nobody would have wanted to hear it. Because it just kind of left you hanging. Now imagine if a person told you that a devastating event was getting ready to happen and they knew how you could avoid that devastating event, but they didn't tell you. That'd be terrible, wouldn't it? Some devastating event was going to happen, guaranteed going to happen, and they knew when it was going to happen, how it was going to happen, and they knew how you could escape it and said nothing of how you could escape it. Would you want to know how you could escape it? You bet. Every person in here would want to know how we could escape that devastating event. Thankfully, God never leaves us hanging. He always tells us the rest of the story. Always. This morning, God, through Peter, is going to begin to tell us the rest of the story. He's going to tell us how to escape that devastating event. Before we look at our passage of Scripture here this morning and begin to discover the rest of the story, let's be reminded of how we got here in Acts chapter 2. In the beginning of Acts 2, the apostles were among 120 believers hanging out in Jerusalem waiting for God to fulfill, Jesus specifically, God the Son, to fulfill His promise of sending the Holy Spirit who would dwell in them. And you can read all about who the Holy Spirit is in the Gospel of John. As they sit and listen to Him, tell about Him, they were in great anticipation about the Holy Spirit. And then in the beginning of chapter 1 of Acts, He tells them, now go back to Jerusalem and wait and I will send the Holy Spirit. Here we find them with 120 believers waiting for the giving of the Holy Spirit and sure enough, Jesus kept his promise of the Holy Spirit. He came, he indwelt the followers of Jesus Christ who were present in that room. Um, This this happened on a day called the Day of Pentecost. Uh, it It was a celebration. It was 50 days after Passover. That's where we get Pentecost. And it was a celebration of the wheat harvest. Later on, it became also the celebration of the giving of the law. Um, and the people were, were, at this time then, when they were gathered together, they were baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other languages. They began, as, as the word is translated in English, and unfortunately it's translated in English, they began to speak in other tongues, which brings great confusion on the body of Christ. And come back in a few weeks, and I'm going to do a whole message just on that subject, tongues, when we finish chapter 2. But it, it means languages. And you can see that from the context, they spoke languages they had never, ever spoken spoken before it'd be like me showing up in germany and speaking german and if anybody knows i don't know any german i can't think of anything but like porsche and that made in germany mercedes isn't that german well they're made there i guess that that's about as much german and also i can speak fluent german that would be amazing and that's what happened all these people began to speak languages they had never studied before never spoken before why because all these jews who spoke different languages had come from all the known world to celebrate the feast of pentecost and here they were explaining to them it says it says that the, the content of their message was the mighty deeds of god and all these people heard which is a miracle in itself because of how many people were there they all heard somehow in their own language it was a miracle and, and there's different responses to what was happening. Some people, some were in amazement and say, what does this mean? Oh my goodness, what, they look around, what does this mean? And others mocked and ridiculed and said, oh, they're drunk. And then Peter stands up 
and brings clarity to the subject with a sermon. Doesn't a sermon always bring clarity to the subject? You're supposed to say yes. All right? Um, hopefully it does. For Peter, I guarantee it did. It brought clarity to the subject. That's what happened. He stood up and he brought clarity. And he tells them what's going on. What you see happening was prophesied in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. That's what's happening. If you remember this, this, what is happening, is that. This is that. He explains, Joel said this was going to happen. And it's going to usher in the messianic age, or what we found out last day, the last days. We asked you a question. Who would like to know if we were in the last days? Everybody wanted to know last week. And we found out, we discovered from the Word of God, that we are in the last days. Now, I'm not saying that the Lord's going to come back next week. That's not what the last days means. But it means that the, that the Messiah would come, he would send the Holy Spirit, and amazing things would happen. He would indwell people, and people would be able to do amazing things to get the word out. And that's what they witnessed. And he says, that's the beginning of the last days. And then he goes on in the last part of this passage and, be, and tells them that there's going to be an end to the last days. So we're, right now, we're living in the, between the comings of Christ. The first coming of Christ as a babe, and the second coming of Christ as king and ruler of the world. When he will bring judgment, he says, for those who reject him. And there'll be blood and, 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 and the, the, the fire and the sun and it'll be all these wild things. And we went to Revelation and he saw, that's what's going to happen then at the end of the last days. There's going to be judgment. And those who reject God's promised Messiah, or in Greek, Christ, the anointed one, they will be subject to this judgment and be cast in the lake of fire. And that's what, that's in, in chapter 2, that's what, Peter says, Joel said was going to happen. And, and then he tells them, that's bad news, but he tells them the good news is that those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Look there at verse uh, 21 of Acts 2. It's the end of our time last week, at the end of Peter's quoting from, from Joel. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Although Peter tells the people gathered here to be, to, to, they, how they can be saved from the judgment to come, there's still two major questions that come from this statement. This is important. He says, and it shall be that everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. So the two major questions are this. Who is the Lord and how do we call on him? Who is the Lord and how do we call him? I mean, who wants to be saved from the judgment to come? I'm in on that. Great, Landon, you're the only other person in here with me. All right, way to go, buddy. All right, hey, I'm in on that. I want to be saved from the judgment to come. All of us do. Let's be honest. We all want to be saved from the judgment to come. So we need to ask those kind of questions, and those are the kind of questions that I'm sure that we're going to be asked, so Peter just cuts them off at the pass in his sermon. He didn't allow him to ask, he just answers, right? Who is the Lord and how, how do we call on him? Well, in verses 22 through 36, which we'll cover this morning, we will answer the question, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? And then in verses 37 through, and 38, which will be part of next time we're in Acts, will be a little bit more than just those two verses. But um, he answers the second question, how do we call on him? The people gathered on the day need to know the answers of those two questions, and so do we. Who is the Lord and how do we call on him? Well, this morning as we work down through these uh, passages, the Lord uh, is going to answer that question, who is the Lord uh, we are to call upon, so that we might be saved from the final judgment of sin. So as Peter proclaimed those words, and it shall be that everyone who calls the name of the Lord be saved, saved not, no doubt some people thought they knew who the Lord was. 
in the crowd. They thought, well, I know who the Lord is. I don't need to ask that question. Come on, skip to the good part. And no doubt there's some people in, our room, in this room today that think they know who the Lord is, but they really don't. And see, I sat in, when I grew up, it was a pew, but I sat in a chair for many, many years, and I thought I knew who the Lord was, but I didn't know who he was. And many of you, that's your same story. You thought you knew who the Lord was, but you really didn't know who the Lord was. And I'm sure the same with the people here and uh, that we'll see today. Thankfully, God, through Peter, is going to inform them and us who the Lord is that we need to call upon so we can be saved from the judgment of sin to come. He's going to tell them and, the re- and us the rest of the story. So how does he do this? Um, he, he did, let's look at verses 22 through 36. Let me give you a quick outline here of this part of uh, Peter's sermon. You're thinking, Peter probably didn't have an outline. Well, he probably didn't have an outline, but he was very systematic in the way that he presented this so people could understand. The whole first part was the introduction, verses 14 through 21. That was just Peter's introduction. I like it. A good, long introduction. Right? All right. And then verses 22, really down through 36, um, which we're going to cover this morning, are the body of Peter's sermon. Let me give the outline of the body of his sermon. Here we go. Verse 22 is the life of Jesus. Verse 23, the death of Jesus. Verses 24 through 32, the resurrection of Jesus. Verses 33 through 35, the exaltation of Jesus. And verse 36, the summation of Jesus. The summary of all that he said. And then we'll see next week the conclusion or the response to his sermon. So where do we get this pattern for preaching? Where do I get the pattern that I used to preach from? Right here, the very first sermon ever preached. I try, I try to, by God's grace, do this every week when I stand here. is to have this same kind of pattern because it's the pattern of the apostles. And if you go look in the book of Acts, this is always the pattern. Always the pattern. So we're going to follow, the, we're going to follow along with uh, Peter here and see what he has to say. Let's pick up there in verse 22 in the body of his sermon. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the, Nazar- the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs uh, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you also yourselves know. Here Peter answers the question, who is the Lord we are to call upon? It's none other than Jesus the Nazarene. And you think, oh man, I'm not in a Nazarene church this morning, I'm in trouble. All right? It's Jesus of Nazareth, and they named their, their, their particular part of the body of Christ Nazarene, in fact, because he was from Nazareth. All right? So it's Jesus, this man from Nazareth. Now Peter will prove in this verse, down through verse 35, why Jesus is Lord. Why, listen to this, why Jesus is Yahweh. What's that? What's Yahweh? Well, Yahweh was the personal name that God gave Moses when he was calling Moses out and said, Who shall I say sent me? Moses said. And God tells him that Yahweh sent you. Tell him that Yahweh sent you. And they begin to discover who Yahweh is. So what's going to happen? Peter's going to show us that Jesus, this man who's in the flesh, is actually Yahweh. His nature is of Yahweh. The God of all the universe has shown up with us. He was with us. So he's going to prove this. Um, and he's the one that we must be, we call upon to be saved from the judgment to come. Now look at the phrase there in verse 22. A man attested to you by God. Some translations say a man approved by God or accredited by God. Uh, the word attested means to approve and give proof of the approval. 
right? You're going to approve of someone, but you're going to be proof that they have reason to be approved of. He's going to attest to Jesus and who he was. It says, man, attest you by God. God the Father proved and gave approval that Jesus was the Lord to be called upon. Now, how, how did he do this? First, he says, he did this, look there in verse 22 again, with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. So these miracles and wonders and signs were all meant to point to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah and Lord. That's what the purpose of them. Let me just say this. I believe that God can perform miracles. I believe he can do whatever he wants. He's God, isn't he? He is God. The greatest miracle he performs is an enemy who hates him and makes him his son or daughter. That's the great. It's better than growing back a leg or getting side or anything like that. That's nothing to God. If he can take somebody who hates him and turn him to a friend. That's an amazing miracle. And God's doing that all the time. He's doing that in our midst right now. Amazing. Can God do this other thing? You bet. He always does it for a purpose. And it's not just so we get a new leg. Or get our sight back or whatever. That's not the greatest purpose. The greatest purpose is to point who Jesus is. It's always been that way. And sometimes we worship the creature rather than the creator, right? That's what it says in Romans. And so this amazing, he did these amazing signs and wonders that Jesus did is to point to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah and Lord. Well, how so? The fact that the Messiah could perform certain miracles and wonders and signs was prophesied throughout the Old Testament. It was meant to be a sign. He's here. Here he is. I'll just give you one example in Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Sound familiar? Go read the Gospels. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. We can go all over the Gospels and see where Jesus did this. This was a prophecy that this is what happened when the Messiah would come. Well, th- this fact of the Messiah performing certain signs and t- t- to attest the fact that he was the Lord and Christ is also stressed by John in his gospel, which we studied here a few years ago. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, speaking of the signs, have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John points to sign after sign after sign to show that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, so that people would believe in him. There was always a purpose in the miracles. And here Peter's saying that God used those signs to attest that this is who Jesus is. He is Lord and Christ. Greek, Christ, Hebrew, Messiah. The anointed one, the promised one of God. And and this fact was not unknown to the people gathered on the day of Pentecost. As Peter says, look at the end of verse 22. Just as you yourselves know. He says you know this. You know that all these things were prophesied and promised that when Messiah showed up, they would happen. And you also know that these were attested to this man named Jesus from Nazareth. You know we've all heard about it. You can't reject it. Even the Pharisees who hated him the most could not get around the fact that he had performed amazing signs and wonders. That's why they wanted to put him to death, because he was getting ready to steal their business. All right, so you, you, you know, he says. So the first proof that God has, uh, God has, that points at Jesus uh, is, is Lord, is his life. That's what he's talking about, his life, his miracles and wonders and signs. This is the life of Jesus. Now look at verse 23 with me. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless, some of your translations say wicked men, and put him 
to death. Here is the second truth God has Peter point to that Jesus is Lord, his death. So we have his life, we have his death. We see this in the words nailed to a cross. Now we all know when he was nailed to a cross, he died, right? That's, we all understand that's what it's speaking of, his death. Notice what Peter says about the death of, Christ, of, of Jesus on the cross. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. What in the world does that mean? What does that mean? This man, speaking of Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Notice first that Jesus was delivered over. Some translations say handed over. He was not taken from God. Instead, God handed him over to be crucified. Let me ask a question. Who's in control? The one handing over or the one receiving? The one handing over. He delivered him. No one took Jesus from God the Father. He delivered him over. And that's what, he, he, he was complete control. This is what Peter's trying to get across. God was in complete control of the crucifixion. It wasn't forced on him. Now look at the words predetermined. Uh, this means to be marked out with boundary beforehand, to determine beforehand. And the word plan, God's will or design. So this is speaking of predetermined plan, is God marked out a boundary his will beforehand before this ever happened God had marked it out this is what will happen he planned it the cross was not by accident Peter's saying there's no plan B with God he didn't go oh man they did this so I guess I'll have to do this and, and whoa they did this and I'm going to have to change again see God's immutable he doesn't change isn't that good news can you imagine if God changed we're all in trouble we change all the time, right? But God never does. There's no plan B with God. This was planned by God. The crucifixion was planned with God beforehand. Jesus himself spoke of this multiple times. For example, look at Luke 2.37. For I tell you that this, is, which, this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors for that which, for that which refers to me has, has its fulfillment. Jesus saying this whole numbering of transgressors, hanging on the cross stuff with these guys... That was promised, and it's fulfilled in me. Then, in, in one of his appearances after his resurrection, in Luke 24, 46, he said, he said to them, this, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer. Jesus said this. It was written, it was promised, it was planned that this would happen to me. So it was God's predetermined plan that Jesus would die on the cross. Now, look with me again at verse 23. And the next phrase it says, predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God's foreknowledge means far more than his ability to anticipate the future. Let me say this again. God's foreknowledge means far more than his ability to anticipate the future. It's another way to speak of his predetermined will or, or ordination of things. In fact, in the older translation, call it the, the, the preordained, or see, predetermined and preordained plan of God. The reason God, now listen to this, think about this with me. The reason that God knows that this is going to happen, listen, the reason that God knows beforehand that this is going to happen is because he planned it beforehand. You hear that? God knows this will happen because he planned it would happen. They go hand in hand. This is another way for Peter to stress that God's in control. He's sovereign over the whole situation. 
It doesn't mean that God looked down the quarters of time, saw that these terrible people would do this to his son, and therefore because he saw that they would do it because they're just so tough, that he would go back and he would plan it. Think about that. Who's in control then? Them or God? Well, that's the way he did it. They're in control. He looked, in no place in the Bible does it talk about God looking down the course of time and doing something, planning something based upon what we would do. No, he knows it'll happen because he planned it would happen. That's the foreknowledge of God. Not, does he know everything's going to happen? Yeah, but it's not because he's, just got, he, oh, he's, he's a wizard like, oh, let me see. Mm, oh, I think this is going to happen, so I'm going to do this. Never with God. That's a pretty weak God if you ask me. That's not what the Bible presents. He knows it because he planned it. Now, the first part of verse 23, let me, let me just say this. Some people just, we see those words and we try to explain them away. And, man, that just sounds kind of hard that God predetermined and he, he knew it was going to happen because he planned it and he nailed his son to the cross. And, man, it's just hard. We, and what we try to do is we try to explain it. We try to apologize for God. You ever try to apologize for God? Why do we need to apologize for God? We don't need to apologize for God, God for who He is. Even things that seem like, oh man, that's kind of tough. He's God. I just want to encourage us, stop apologizing for God. He doesn't need to soften who He is. This is what makes Him so great that He is sovereign. And he's not dependent upon us. Now, now look what happens in verse 23. God, through Peter, wants to stress that God, obviously, is absolute control of Jesus' death on the cross. That is the sovereignty of God. Now look at the second half of verse 23, because some of you are getting really uncomfortable. I know it. Because I'm a little uncomfortable with that. That's all it says. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. He's speaking to the Jews gathered here at Pentecost. He says that you nailed to a cross by hands of God's men and put him to death. Here we see that those who put Jesus on the cross were held responsible for their actions. They don't get off the hook because it was God's predetermined plan. Just because God was sovereign and he planned this before this event before the foundations of the world, it says in the scripture, did not mean that they got off. Jesus says something similar to this in Luke twenty two twenty two. Look at this. For indeed the Son of Man is going to going as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. You see that? It's been determined Jesus is going to go out this way. Who? By who? By God. But it says, but woe to the man, speaking of Judas, who he betray, he's betrayed. Woe to Judas. Judas was held responsible for what he did, although it was planned before the foundation of the earth. It was already determined. Here we see the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man laid side by side, and we don't like it. Let's all be honest. Come on, we don't like that, do we? We, we don't like that because we can't figure it out. That's the problem. That's why we don't like the sovereignty of God, because we're not in control. I don't like it because I'm not in control. I want to be in control, don't you? Who in here doesn't want to be in control? We all do. We show up by our selfishness, don't we? I do it every day. I want to be in control. And we don't like things when we aren't in control, not just that God is sovereign, but we can't figure this out. Peter lays these two truths, look at this, side by side in Acts 2, with no explanation as to how you can reconcile the two truths. You're like, come on, Peter, here's your chance, brother. We all want to know the answer. And he just keeps going. Verse 24. 
What's wrong with Peter? Doesn't he know we all want to know the answer to this? How you can reconcile that God is absolutely sovereign, but man is held responsible. Whoa! If you're thinking, you're thinking, you gotta, if you're thinking at all this morning, you're like, man, that just does not seem right. And many people ask the question, how can you reconcile the fact that God is in absolute control, he's absolutely sovereign, with the fact that man is held responsible, that man is responsible? Here's the answer to that question. How can you resolve? I'm going to give you the answer this morning. You guys ready? Peter didn't give the answer. I'm going to give you the answer. Listen. You can't this side of heaven. You can't reconcile that. You cannot reconcile the fact that God is an absolutely sovereign. He's after control and that man is responsible for what we do. This side of heaven, we can't reconcile it. But you know what? They're both in Scripture. They're both there. And we have to deal with them and not try to explain either one of those things away. They're both there. The problem is not with God, but with our inability to understand some of the great things about God. We just have to say, man, God, you're awesome. You're way more. Your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. God, you're awesome. I bow down and worship you. That should be our response to something like this. Not like, well, let's have a philosophical discussion how you reconcile these two, which many people have written many books on there. If you ask my, time, my thought, they've wasted a lot of time because the Scripture doesn't even reconcile it for us. Peter didn't, so I'm not going to try to either. Jesus, so, so, so with that, since Peter did not spend time trying to reconcile these truths, I'm not going to spend time reconciling these truths. But I'm going to let them say what he meant them to be saying. God is in absolute control of the crucifixion. And man, the men that put him to death are absolutely accountable for what they did. There you go. Now, if I thoroughly confused you, let's move on. All right? shouldn't be confusing. It should be, you know, God, God is God. And I'm thankful he is. Jesus died on the cross according to the predetermined foreknowledge of God. And those who put him there are guilty. Jesus paid the penalty of death we deserved. That's what happened. And thankfully, it was in the heart of God before the foundation of the earth. Aren't you glad it was? Because it was depending on what we did or what we might do, he never would have sent Jesus. No way. Well, this was Peter's second truth that Jesus is Lord, his death. Uh, this, uh, this, so let's look at the third proof that Jesus is Lord, beginning in verse 24. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. I love these words. Now, some of your translations, for some reason, don't... It says, and God. It, it, it is a contrast. It's but God. It indicates a huge contrast with what came before it. You put to death the hands of godless men, the Son of God. The, crucif the crucifixion was not the end of the story, but God. I love that. When you see but God in Scripture, you just go, hallelujah, there's a but God here. You see it all through Scripture, and when you see that, it's amazing what God's getting ready to do. But God, once again, Peter emphasized that God was in control. Despite the intent of man to oppose Jesus, God would work out his pan by raising him up from the dead. He put an end to the agony of death. Look at that phrase. The word agony means birth pangs. Anybody relate to that in here, all you women? Bad women? Yeah. Birth pangs. That's what the word agony means here. And, and, and I love what John MacArthur says about this. It's a great picture of what he was trying to communicate Peter was. Like the pain of woman in labor, the pain of death for Jesus was temporary and resulted in something glorious, the resurrection. Isn't that good? Something terrible. God changed to glorious. 
Now notice the phrase, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Why was it impossible for Jesus to be held in the power of death? This is his point. That remember, he's trying to prove that Jesus is the one, the Lord they need to call upon, that he is Yahweh. Why is it impossible for death to hold him? Because he is Yahweh, and he is life. Death cannot overcome life. The one who, it contains life. So he's trying to say, it couldn't hold him, because he was who he was. He was the Lord. Then Peter directs them to, to Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, to show that the resurrection was always in God's plan for the Messiah. Look at this. So this is the, the third proof, the resurrection. Death couldn't hold him. Look at verses 25 through 28. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh always will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So here he quotes this, this from Psalm 16. All right? And then he explains them. What kind of sermon is this? An expository sermon. He explains the text, which is what all sermons should be. An explanation of the Word of God. Not the presentation of man's thoughts so what does he do he he quotes this and then he goes and this is what he says let me explain to you what i just read i'm I'm, so i'm gonna let peter explain what he just read since he already did it for you brethren i may confidently say that you regarding the patriarch david who wrote psalm 16 that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today and so because he was a prophet and knew that god had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne which he did He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which you are all witnesses. He said, now this psalm, we look at Psalm 16, you read that, and and David writes it. But did David die? Yep. Still got David's tomb? Yep. Did he suffer decay? Yep. So can Psalm 16 be talking about David? Nope. It's talking about Jesus is what he's saying. It's empty. The tomb is empty, so this psalm must be talking about Jesus. So listen, here's what David did. Being a, it says that he was a prophet. He spoke for God beforehand that this was going to happen. And the words we have here in this part of Psalm 16 are actually the words of Jesus, not David. Jesus spoke these things. Read Psalm 16 like that as if Jesus spoke them, not David. David, in a sense, was speaking what Jesus was speaking. Peter shows that Psalm 16 could not speak of David. And based on this third truth, the resurrection of Jesus, which is proven throughout Scripture, that Jesus is Lord, Peter now points to the fourth proof in verses 33 through 35. You guys are thinking, how did I get there so quickly? Because, I mean, what do I need to add to that? It's pretty simple, isn't it? It's simple. He just explains it. We, yeah, we understand he's dead. Okay, resurrection was talking about Jesus, Psalm 16, the whole time. So let's move on to the fourth proof. Look at verses 33 through 35. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but it was, it, he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is the exaltation of Jesus. 
the fourth proof that he is Lord. Peter points to Psalm 110 as proof for Jesus' exaltation. He says, he didn't say this to David. He said, the Lord said to my Lord. No, Yahweh said to the Son, all right, the Father said to the Son, said at my right hand, the Lord said to my Lord. He's God. Now Jesus sits in a place where he has the right to judge his enemies. That's what he's saying. I'll give you the Lord said to my Lord said to my right hand until, you make, um, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So God, the Father, has exalted Christ. All right? He sent to heaven, set at the right hand of the throne of God, the, 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 the place of power, the place of privilege. It was reserved from him, for him where he left to come to die for us. And now he sits there with the right to judge his enemies. Who are Jesus' enemies? Who are Jesus' enemies? All those who have sinned and rejected him as God's provision for their sin. All of those who have sinned. Let's just do this for all of those who have sinned. Would somebody like to tell me they've never sinned in here this morning? Okay, good. Because if, you did, if you've said you never sinned and you raise your hand, you know, that's your first sin, you lied. Okay? So we're all in the same boat. And for those who reject his sacrifice for sin, those are his enemies. And God, Jesus now sits. So at the end of the last days, there'll be this judgment which was promised in Joel, which we saw, as we see meted out in Revelation. All right? It's going to happen. And Jesus is going to be the judge. All right, now look, what, look at verse 36 at Peter's summary of Jesus and his proofs that Jesus is the Lord we must call upon to be saved. Look what he says. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's the summary. I just proved it, Peter said. Know for certain, he says, that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Yahweh and the Messiah, the promised Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. The rest of the story is that Jesus is Lord and Christ. Therefore, call upon him. You want to know who to call upon? Call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That was his message for these people, and that's his message for us today. So how we respond to God's message through Peter, proving that Jesus is the Lord, we must call upon to be saved from the judgment of sin, is most definitely coming. Well, we're going to look at it more detail next week, all right, in verses 37 and fall. And the next, we won't be next, next week, but when we're back in Acts. Um, but for now, let me just summarize. Repent and believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the summary of what we'll see. So what's repent mean? Well, you know, I've heard that my whole life. I know what that means. Well, well do you? And maybe you haven't heard your old knife. But we would, so it's a biblical word. We need to understand what it means. To repent means to turn, all right, from one thing to another. It happens first in our, in our, in our mind, obviously, right? We, boom. We have a change of mind, which leads to a change of heart. So we quit trusting in ourselves to make ourselves right with God because God's standard, God's standard is 99.9, right, on the holiness scale, right? Nope, it's 100 and the Bible tells us we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. His standard is 100 and none of us meet it. On our best day, we don't meet it. Ever. 
He says we have to always meet it. We turn from trusting ourselves who can never, ever make ourselves right with God. And we turn, here's the repentance, we turn and here we believe, the word believe or trust, and we trust in what Jesus did on our behalf. The difference of Christianity, I've said this before, and all other worldviews in this world is a spelling issue, right? Here's what all other worldviews say about how we're made right with God. They, they, they spell it this way, D-O. It's what you do. If you just do this, 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 it'll make you right with God. The only problem is the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible spells it this way, D-O-N-E. It's what Jesus has done on your behalf. That's what makes us right with God. Our trust in what he has done on our behalf. The perfect, sinless son. The perfect lamb of God who died in our place to take the sin. To take the judgment that we deserved. He died in our place. And it says that those who quit trusting themselves and seeking sin and trust in Jesus. That you will be saved from the wrath to come. You will be saved from the judgment of God on your sin. Isn't that great news? That's why it's called the gospel. And that's what Peter's getting to. You've all been trying to do it yourself. You can never do it. Stop! And trust in Jesus who did it for you. That's what it's about. That's how we respond. And for those of you who have already done that, consider this truth. In Romans 8, 8, 11, it says, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and the if there is, is a certain condition in the Greek means... Since the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So how do we respond? Live like it. Live like the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. And be His witnesses. That's what Acts is all about, to be on mission. We live like that. We like we believe it because it is true, because he lives in us and empowers us to take the message of the good news that Jesus does save from the very wrath that he'll bring about because he died and rose again to conquer sin and death. Happy Resurrection Day. That's why it's a happy Resurrection Day. Right there, Peter gives it to us. Great news. My prayer is that we'll respond like God would want us to respond this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, the clarity of this sermon by Peter who pointed to the very fact that your son was our Savior because he was both Lord and Christ through his life, through his death, by his resurrection and his exaltation. He has proved to be Lord and Christ, the Messiah, the Christ who was promised to come and save us from the penalty, the power, and the presence of our sin. Lord, I pray for those in this room this morning who have never, ever turned from trusting themselves and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for what he's done on their behalf, to forgive them their sin, to make them right with you. Lord, I pray that you would bring them to the place of repentance and faith in Jesus. And for those of here who have, Lord, I pray we would live like the Spirit, of Christ, the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us by our actions, by our words, by our attitudes. So you might be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.